page 1072 if you're using the Pew Bible. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. This is God's word, which is given to us as people for our good. Just to situate us a little bit, in chapter 8, God has, has prophesied through Isaiah of a coming calamity upon the northern kingdom of God's people. Remember, God's kingdom Israel splits into two kingdoms after Solomon. Isaiah chapter 8 prophesies of a coming calamity upon the northern kingdom. And Isaiah primarily prophesies to the southern kingdom. And so 9 chapter 1 is actually a promise that God gives to that northern kingdom. And then in verses 2 through 7, we see a very famous prophecy that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we're going to contemplate that as we gather around the table of our Lord today. But let us read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. O come thou bright and morning star, bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. The night can seem to last forever. The night of despair, of gloom, of judgment. Certainly this would have been the feeling for most in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. The glories of the kingdom of David a distant, past, a distant memory in the distant past, the kingdom of Rome upon them, seemingly without weakness. Their night of suffering had begun 700 years prior, generation after generation becoming further removed from the hope that there would ever be a light that would shine on them. Psalm 30 reminds us or captures perhaps this despair when it says weeping may last for the night but then what does it say joy comes in the morning 
Israel, at the time of Jesus' birth, was starved for a morning of hope. A morning of hope. J.R.R. Tolkien says that dawn is ever the hope of men. Dawn is a new beginning, a fresh start, assurance that things can be made new and right again. The scriptures tell us that God himself is the light that human beings need. God himself is the only hope for humanity. It is God alone who is the hope for humanity because it is God alone who saves us. God saves us in ways which are not only extravagant in his love, but they are miraculous in their process. What I mean by that is this. God promises big things in salvation. Big things. But through God's working, from God, these big things come in small packages. Only God could give something so great, salvation from sin, heavenly blessings, in such a counterintuitive way. This is unexpected. It's impressive. It's awe-inspiring enough to invoke praise and adoration and gratitude for an entire life. One thing that this passage shows us in Isaiah 9 is a certain future. A certain future. And a certain future gives God's people joy in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. A certain future gives joy in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. This morning we focus our affection and our gratitude and our joy around the table of the Lord, where we are reminded that God's power is shown through weakness, just as his promise centers upon a young child, a young child who was born as the king of kings. The certainty of the future is highlighted within our passage, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, by a very simple observation, and it's this. This prophecy is presented to us as history. That is strange, isn't it? Because prophecies tell us something of the future, and it is clear that this prophecy is dealing with the future as it's telling us of the blessing that God will give to his people after he refines them through his judgment, through his punishment. Take a look at the passage, though. For instance, in verse 2, the people have seen, the people have seen a great light. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. Verse 4, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. All of these statements are given as statements of fact, aren't they? As if Isaiah is telling them as history. Yet they are things that Isaiah could not have said about his people, about God's people at that time. But look then at verse 7, where we see Isaiah show us all the promises that that have been given, that are given in this passage, are not yet fulfilled, but they will be in the future. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish them. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish them. Isaiah can speak of a future that is so certain, he presents it to us as a past event. Why? Because of the Lord of hosts. Because of the Lord Almighty. That is the God that we serve. That is the God of Scripture. That is the God of the Gospel. The future that he declares to his people is as certain as the past which has already come and gone. And that touches upon the hope of Christmas, doesn't it? At the time of Isaiah, Christ had not yet come. But now he has, and we see and behold him. The bright and morning star, the the dawn of salvation, the one who came and broke into the darkness of the world. But now we await his second coming. 
But the point is that his second coming is just as sure, just as fixed, just as certain as the first time he came to earth. Came to earth. Why? Because God can declare to us a future that is as certain as the past, which has already come and gone. Jesus is the bright morning star. He is presented to us in this passage as the light. As the light. So we ponder then the light of Christ. Again, Isaiah is prophesying to the southern people of Judah, but in chapter 8 he has spoken of this coming calamity upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And so the, the northern kingdom makes a pact, a covenant with Syria, but in response to that, God brings upon them Assyria. So you have Israel joining with Syria, Assyria comes against them, and the people of Judah might look to their former brothers and sisters of the north, and they might be tempted to rejoice. Oh, they're getting what they deserve, aren't they? See, we knew they were wrong. We knew that God's judgment would come upon them. But it also creates a problem for the people of Judah. Why? Because Assyria is coming down from the north, and it brings this world power right to their doorstep. Right to the doorstep of the people of Judah. And the temptation is to think that the main crisis they need to be worried about is this Assyrian power brought to their doorstep. And they may need to act in a certain way because of this. But in Isaiah chapter 8, God says to his people through Isaiah, I am to be the one you fear. You think Assyria is your biggest crisis. You think Assyria is your biggest problem. No, your biggest problem is that my anger and my wrath are inflamed against you for your disobedience. When a crisis comes upon you, and here's a point of connection between us and this passage today. When a crisis comes upon you and you are tempted to act in a certain way, God says to his people in Isaiah chapter 8, ask yourself, how has God commanded you to live. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Do not let Assyria compel you to act in a way that you know I have commanded you not to act. Let God be your fear. So when we come to chapter 9, God gives a promise, but he gives a promise to this northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, the ones who have just been told the Assyrian power is going to come and take you out. Those who would have been the first to experience Assyria as it came down from the north would have been Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribal regions that would have been farthest to the north. And here, those who study the scriptures have seen that Isaiah gives a very clear and amazing prophecy of Jesus Christ. Because in Isaiah 9, chapter 1, God promises that the light will break forth from way up there in the north, from Galilee. So the gospel writers pick up on this. This is what the gospel of Matthew says in Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus was out in the desert and he was tempted, we read this. Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew is saying that Jesus is this light. Jesus is this light that was prophesied in Isaiah. He's the light of the world that has come to shine in the darkness. The Gospel of John picks up on this right from the beginning, doesn't it? John chapter 1, 
In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In what sense is Jesus the light? Does he come to shine brightly, to give his knowledge of eternal truth just for the sake of shining brightly? No. In Luke chapter 1, we have the answer. In Zechariah's prayer, remember Zechariah is holding John the Baptist. His mouth is opened and he, and he offers this psalm of praise. So he's speaking to John the Baptist about how he is going to go before the Lord. And he says this, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun, right, the day spring, the morning star. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus is the light of righteousness which shines into the darkness of sin. The world is dark. The world is dark. Why? Because we live in the shadow of death. Because we live in the shadow of death. Every evil and rotten thing about our world is the result of sin. It's the result of man's rebellion. This world, of course, was created to be in perfect harmony with God. And we messed it up. And we brought this world into, it, into the darkness of the shadow of death. But Christ is the light that breaks through the darkness of night at dawn. His light cuts through night's darkness, forever dispels that night. He is the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, whom God sent to shine in the darkness of sin. But if dawn is ever the hope of men, then when dawn comes, joy accompanies the dawn. Weeping lasts for the night. Dawn comes and joy comes in the morning. Verse 3 of Isaiah 9 speaks of that joy. A joy as it is God himself who increases the nation. This is probably a reference to the promise given to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so that you might be a blessing. Isaiah uses two pictures to talk about the joy that is felt when morning comes. Number one is people at the harvest. And number two is victors dividing the spoils of battle. What's common? What's the common thread in those two examples? It seems to be that those are both situations where people feel as though all of their needs are met. They have more than they could ever possibly want. After a good harvest, you feel like you have more food than you could ever want. Victors dividing the spoils think they'll, they'll never be in want again. Look at all the stuff that they have because they win in battle. The joy that God gives is a joy that comes out of his bounty, that meets all of our needs. The joy that comes in the morning of his light shining, that's how we are to feel. Isaiah also gives explicit reason as to why this joy is felt. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 speaks of deliverance. Deliverance. God will shatter the yoke that burdens them. The comparison is to when God's people battled against Midian. 
Remember, this is from the book of Judges, where Gideon obeyed God and whittling down his army from 22,000 all the way to 300. 22,000 all the way to 300. And God's people still defeat Midian. What does that show us? That shows us that the victory could have only come from God. Just as only God could have freed them from Egypt, so only he could have given them the victory over nations like Midian. And Jesus Christ, the light that comes into the world, frees his people from an enslavement they did not even know that they had. In John chapter 8, Jesus is discussing with the leaders of Israel, and we read this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. What are they saying? Our God freed us from Egypt. Our God broke us out of enslavement. How can you say that we are slaves? And so they ask, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's an enslavement they didn't even know that they had. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Galatians 5 goes on to say what? For freedom, Christ has set us free. We rejoice at the morning dawn, the bright and morning star, because God delivers us. God delivers us from our bondage to sin. Verse 5 says that we are to rejoice because of peace. We are to rejoice because of peace. The armor that is used in battle, the clothing that is dirty and and is covered in blood from war, it's no longer any use, right? Verse 5 says it's going to be fuel for the fire. Take what you wore in battle and burn it. It's useless. Soldiers, when they come home from war today, what do they do? They clean their boots. They hang them up. They clean their uniform. They hang it up. Why? Because it's a great blessing to come home from battle But there may be a time when they have to go back. There may be a time when they have to go back. God promises perpetual peace. God promises perfect peace. That is the peace of his kingdom. That's the peace that we are to experience now as we think about our reconciliation to God and Christ and as we think about the reconciliation that God has effected amongst us. The peace that the church is to show with one another. The forgiveness, the deference, the looking out for each other's needs. That's a foretaste of the perfect and perpetual peace that God promises at the consummation of his kingdom. Throughout this age, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars. But as the church, we don't gird up our weapons. We don't go into battle in the name of Jesus Christ. Spiritual battle, yes, but not physical The the peace that we experience as the church is a foretaste of this perfect and perpetual peace that God promises here in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 gives us really uh, exactly how this will happen, the deliverance and the peace. And verse 6 is probably the most startling. It tells us how God is going to deliver us. tells us how God is going to give us this perfect and perpetual peace. It will happen through a child, a young child. 
This promise is an expansion of what we find back in chapter 7, that God would give a son who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. But this passage gives a clear picture that ultimately, even if the promise of a child which is given to Israel will initially be fulfilled in someone like Hezekiah, it will only ultimately be fulfilled in one who comes truly as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Those are wonderful titles. Don't have time to unpack all of those this morning. We'll probably do it at a later time this Christmas season. What I'd like us to focus on here is that it is a child who will be the center of salvation. It once again highlights the fact that when salvation is accomplished, God's people look back upon it, and what do they say? Only God could have done this. Extravagant in his love, miraculous in the way that he shows his love. That is God's kingdom. God's kingdom is built by him and is built by his power. Verse 3, you are the one who increases the nation. You are the one who gives the growth. When wise men come from the east, where do they go? They go to Herod first. They go to Herod first. They say, where's the palace? Surely the one who is born king of the Jews will be kept under Herod's protection until he is ready to go out and conquer kingdoms. No. Jesus was born not in Herod's palace. He was born in a manger, in the most unexpected place. In the Gospels, Jesus welcomes the children because he teaches us that by grace we are saved. By grace we are given the deliverance and peace that the kingdom promises. So until that day comes in its fullness, God builds us up for the journey by giving us things that appear minuscule and significant in the eyes of the world. A little bread, a little wine. Here at the table, God ministers to us. Here at the table, he proclaims his gospel to us. Here at the table, by his Holy Spirit, he comforts us. He builds us up. He reminds us the miraculous nature of our salvation, of our redemption in Christ. Here at the table, we say that at the cross, the price was paid. It is finished. The body and blood were broken and shed for us by the one who came as a child, The salvation of God accomplished in a child. Born without status, lived without earthly power to give the eternal blessings of heaven to those whom whom the world would consider weak and and worthless. So set your hope this morning. Set your hope fully on Christ and his cross. And trust that at the table the Holy Spirit might bring us more into communion with our great God who gives a certain future who gives a lasting joy by reminding us of that deliverance, by reminding us of that peace, and by reminding us in these signs that seem worthless, seem minuscule, seem insignificant to so many, reminds us that our salvation is all of his grace and all by his power. Let's pray. Father, bless our time then as we gather around your table. Feed us, nourish our hearts through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen. If you would take out your form, which is...